This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Earlier this fall, UCLA quarterback Josh Rosen made a statement that had many people on both sides of the collegiate collegiate athletics aisle stand up and shake their heads. He said that, quote, football and school don't go together. Trying to do both is like trying to do two full-time jobs. Duke men's basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski has called for reform of the NCAA, in part in wake of what has happened at the University of North Carolina and the scandal there. But there are athletes at some college, some of them at Ivy League schools, that are able to play two sports as well as taking a full course load. The question is, how do we make things better for student athletes so that they can get the best out of both? A new book looks at that issue. Ken Shropshire and Colin Williams have collaborated on the miseducation of the student-athlete, how to fix college sports. And it's great to have both of them joining us today. Ken, as always, great to have you from lovely Arizona today. Don't don't be too jealous, man. (laughs) Colin, great to have you joining us on the phone as well. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Colin, I I guess I'll start with you because in part – Part of putting this book together, from what I understand, uh, came out of your dissertation while you were here at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Uh, so in twenty in, in, in twenty fourteen, I well even before then, but in twenty fourteen, I sort of set out on on this path to talk to as many Division One student athletes in revenue generating sports, specifically men's football, to talk to them about what their student athlete experience was like. What was it like to both go to college? and also be playing a sport at the second highest tier uh, possible in the United States. Um, And what was sort of even an issue in collecting data, but as well as talking about their overall experience, the conversation always began with time. It was impossible for most of them to do both be students and to be athlete, right? Uh, Just the time commitment um, had grown so much. The the sports have become so big uh, that, the 40 to 50 hours a week that they spend on sports just did not allow them enough time to also be dedicated students and engage in other sort of purposeful activities on campus. So then when you hear the comments of Josh Rosen that I mentioned at the outset here, your reaction is what? Of course, absolutely. Like he, he, he's completely right. Um, my reaction is how do we sort of have this honest conversation, right? I think uh, my, my sort of approach to this subject is we're promising student-athletes a free education in exchange for the time and commitment that they dedicate to their sports. However, the very nature of the commitment to their sports does not allow them to be students fully. So how do we think about, be honest about that first, and then reform the system that exists to make sure that they can do both in the times that they spend on their respective campuses? Ken, there are obviously a lot of pieces to this conversation. The the comments by Rosen are obviously one thing. We I mentioned uh, what uh, the University of North Carolina is going on, uh, going through uh, with the investigation they've had to deal with the last couple of years. And, and you uh, both put together an, an interesting start to this book because you asked the question, can we fix sports? And, and so I'll pose that to you. Can they be fixed? Uh, not not in your or my lifetime. Maybe Collins, <laughs> but, right? But, but it, it's it's going to take it's going to take a long time. But but our primary purpose is to uh, redirect the conversation, to refocus it on a path that can serve to fix it, that gets away from the conversation about 
uh, paying athletes, which is perfectly fine. It gets away from a conversation about is, is, uh, are people spending too much money on facilities and, and that sort of thing. That, that, that is not the conversation. The conversation we need to have is how do we ensure that these men and, and women that participate in, in college sport go on to have the best lives possible after investing this amount of time and energy in this activity and with the resources that are available. Is it fair or unfair in your mind to say that there's a difference between the revenue-generating sports and the non-revenue-generating sports in terms of the ability of the athlete to be able to handle both? I I don't think so. I mean, I I, I think... uh, for the most part, at the highest level, and if you look at places that uh, places that that have won the Learfield or or or, or Sears Trophy, Stanford, you, you win the most national championships in all these sports. Yeah. These athletes are dedicated around the clock, year round, to their sport. The only difference is the amount of dollars that that they bring in to the universities. So you can have a different philosophical conversation about uh, allocation of resources and the like. But in terms of the time commitment, if you are a tennis player, if you are a lacrosse player, if you are a gymnast, you put in tremendous amounts of time. And, it, it, and the, none of these sports, none at the highest level, are seasonal anymore. You are working on that sport year-round uh, in the hours allocated. And if you're going to be a champion, hours that are not allocated specifically by the University of NCAA, you find time to do it on your own. Colin? Yeah, I... I, I... Ken's 100% right. Uh, the, t- the time commitment is consistent across all divisions. I think the point that um, sometimes gets lost, though, is sort of the outcomes. So uh, when we disaggregate the data based upon division and sport, we see that in certain places the outcomes are different. So for the most part, Division two and Division three athletes, as the NCAA you know, uh, totes all the time, they do graduate at rates higher than their non-sport peers, and they often have sort of life satisfaction ratings that are – higher than their non-sport peers. Uh, the difference, though, is for a lot of the Division One athletes, particularly in revenue-generating sports, that's where the outcomes aren't as, uh, aren't as ideal. Um, so there, is, there has to be some intentional focus in that space because we know that they aren't benefiting in the same ways that the Division Two and Division Three peers are. But you also have the issues of, uh, of these uh, young men and women, uh, in some cases, coming to a, a setting which is, is totally unfamiliar with them, and the societal uh, issues of, of being involved in that community that they have to deal with as well, Colin. And that's a, that's a, a daunting task for some individuals as well. Absolutely. Uh, for, for so many of these athletes, you know, they, they're first-generation college students. They haven't been um, socialized into the college space the way their non-sport peers have. Um, so while a traditional student, you know, spends time researching and looking for schools and doing campus visits, um, a lot of the recruited athletes have folks coming to their homes, their hometowns, and selling college to them. Uh, that makes it a, a, a incredibly uh, impactful. That, that makes a huge difference upon the ways in which they view the school space and how they even come into that and base, and think about their roles and identities of whether or not they're students first or they're athletes first and how the folks that are on their campuses also view them, including their peers and professors and faculty and the like. Ken? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back even, even in, in my time, uh, you know, a bunch of African-American guys, largely from, from South Central L.A. Is, is where Stanford was recruiting at the time. We were all together one day and we saw another one of our uh, recruits with a group of white students coming out of class. This is the first time we 
we sort of saw somebody off on their own. Right. And he came, he came over. He's coming out of a sociology class. I said, well, so what are you doing, brother? He said, I'm assimilating. And, and we, we <laughs> joke about that to this day, the, the formality of the language that he used and, and the idea of how unique it was for, for this moment to, to, to integrate, in a sense, into, into this community that we had no familiarity with. That story uh, recreates itself today, except the intensity is, is not just the, the racial background, but the athletic background that you've just been involved with athletes the entire time. Do you integrate into the rest of the campus or not? Or not? Well, there uh, is actually, I don't know if you've seen it, Ken, but there's a, an excellent uh, 30 for 30 that ESPN did a couple of years ago about the Colorado football program and Bill McCartney, the head coach. Yeah. And, and that really shows, uh, you know, what McCartney was trying to do in working with, as you mentioned, a lot of the same types of athletes that were coming from places like South Central L.A. No, and, and McCartney, had, many people recall, had this great success on the field. He had kind of a formula for a moment. But then when it began to fall apart was exactly those moments when uh, the, the, the football players integrated with the rest of the Colorado University setting. It, it just was not done properly. And, and there has to be more attention paid to the issue of there's going to be life after sport. And at some point earlier, is, is my thought, than, than later, is you, you begin to figure out how do you help someone transition into the real world. Let's hope everybody has a long professional athletic career. But guess what? Nobody's career has lasted forever. Nobody so has played forever. Who do you think that, that really falls on? Does that fall on the university as their responsibility? Does it fall on the particular coaches that are within that sport? Uh, does, it, you know, does it fall on the university as a whole? We are, we are uh, pretty clear that it takes everybody to refocus this. There are certainly those that have more power than others. And in, in the book, we've talked about the, the, the sports power matrix. And, and, and certainly there's a great deal of power in the NCAA, but there's a great deal of power in college presidents, athletic directors, but also for the, the students themselves. We began to see them wield some of this power with unionization and other activities over the past couple of years. So it, it needs to be a real focus on making this change. And, and, as, and as so often the case in social movements, it may not be for, for them, but it could be for the future if, if the change begins. Colin? Yeah, uh, I, I think we also have to add sort of others in the ecosystem that goes down to the family, um, that, that right. goes down to the communities that these, uh, these young men and women are coming from, um, even to the media, right? The way that they tell the stories, the folks that have the, the power to talk about athletes and, and, and what their stories are like. Um, sometimes I think we need to talk about these stories more and, and to really talk about where these folks are coming from and understanding the struggles that they deal with and they face uh, because it, it, it really does take the village. And th there, there is no way for us to say that we can just put the entire onus of reform on a member institution or just on the NCAA, right? It, it, yeah. it takes every stakeholder who says that they care about student athletes and what happens to them after sport um, to really step up and, and to do this together. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in, we're talking with Ken Shropshire and Colin Williams, co-authors of the book, The Miseducation of the Student Athlete, How to Fix College Sports. Great discussion. We'd like you to join in. 844-942-7866. Ben in Saratoga Springs joins us. Ben, go ahead. Hey, guys. So I was a dual D1 sport athlete back in college, and, and I found that it helped me with my, my schooling because I had to maintain a level to continue to 
to get my scholarship. Um, and if I didn't get the scholarship, I would have had to be a working athlete. So my, my question is, is, have you guys looked at a correlation between the students that have to work full-time while going to school versus a student-athlete and the loads that are on them and, and, and really do a fair analysis for the, the people that have to work full-time versus the student-athletes who don't have to work because of the scholarships? Ken, Colin, who would like to take that? Well, well I, I, I'll tell you, there, there are some studies that, that show, and it sounds like uh, from the caller, the personal experience, that, athletic, that academic performance tends to be higher in season, that, that there is a greater success in season, which is uh, in some sense counterintuitive, but, but also points to uh, the organization that has to take place to be successful and how specific amounts of times are, 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 are devoted to, to study. It also is the case uh, when there is the, quote, off-season, which is not as extreme as it used to be, uh, that the, the I mean, idle hands are the devil's workshop, that you, you stray away from the work that, that you need to do. But comparing directly with people that, that have full-time jobs, I, I, I'm not really certain about that. Colin? Yeah, uh, I, I can't speak definitively on that, but I, I do know that retention rates, uh, uh, it's, it's typically harder for folks that are working full-time jobs uh, and putting themselves through school to, uh, to, to, to they typically graduate at lower rates when they have that consistent, um, that, that setback. Because a lot of, a lot of what comes in the learning at school and the sense of belonging in, in terms of uh, the education literature is their engagement in non-sport non activities. So the things that when you have a job you're not able to do, um, being a part of student government or studying abroad or having an internship or being a part of any sort of extracurricular activity, those tend to um, increase the, uh, the rates at which students uh, participate, I mean, graduate and uh, perform because they are now tied to the school beyond just a classroom setting or beyond just the sports setting. They don't, they, they, it means more to them to do well because they're connected in a number of ways to the university. Ben, thanks very much for the comments. You can join in at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Colin, a few minutes ago, you mentioned you brought up the NCAA, and certainly that's an organization that has been taking quite a bit of heat lately. Uh, for some of the things that they are either doing incorrectly or not doing altogether. So, I mean, a lot of people would say that the NCAA should should bear a, a majority of the brunt of some of these issues that, that need to be dealt with. Uh, I, I would say the NCAA are the people that are most visible. And, uh, again, it, it's not just on them, but I think as the folks that are most visible, as the folks that have taken up the onus, to ensure fairness, fairness and safety in intercollegiate athletics, um, that they have to uh, reprioritize at times, right? They have to spend a little bit more time thinking about what types of examples and messages they're sending uh, when we see students get away with certain things around academic fraud and then see others get called out. Um, I, I think one, one of the major issues is that uh, a disproportionate amount of the attention has been on impermissible benefits and uh, sort of the defending amateurism right. and looking at the money that they might be missing out on or that side of it as opposed to the education. I, I, I really think the conversation um, starts with the NCAA sort of putting education at the forefront and then having the decisions that they make um, indicate that, right? Like re really setting that example that, hey, we are first and foremost educational institutions 
um, and, and we as the policing body prioritize that. Ken? Yeah, you know, Colin and I, and I, I drug Colin Long on this, people that are late to the party uh, are, are those who are most likely to criticize the NCAA without setting forth a, a path to success, a path to change. I mean, the NCAA it, sits there sort of like the government. It, it's, it's not going away, uh, and not, but not from any circumstance that I can see. And, and there are very good people there, and it's a very difficult change to make. It is a monolith. It is, it is the enterprise, and it's, it's hard to move this thing around. So, so I think we, we lose a lot of energy criticizing and, and focusing on the NCAA rather than presenting here are the changes we need to make in whatever yeah. way they can be made. And there's a lot of independence that exists now um, among the, the, the ind individual conferences and the individual schools in terms of what they can do. Well, and, and in the book, you lay out a variety of different things that uh, that you and Colin would like to see occur. Uh, and and it's, it's a lengthy list, but we'll go through a couple of them. And one uh, is mandating academic boot camps for entering student-athletes and professional boot camps for exiting student-athletes. Athletes, Ken. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you, know, yeah. you, you have uh, before you you go to a job, you, you get the kind of guidance that you need to be successful in your job. Um, in, in college sport, the early time that you spend is largely early ball of whatever sports you're playing, as opposed to here's the academic setting you're coming into. And, and we're really focused on it. Ideally, if you're going to spend the dollars uh, on individual counseling. You're taking individuals in at all different levels. You're helping them to map out a game plan for success. For some, and this is part of the manifesto too, it's going to be you can finish in four years or five years. For others, it's going to be an, an eight-year path or a 10-year right. path if you want to be a, a physician or something like that. But it's to realistically figure out how that can be done. And on the back end, everybody's not going to be a professional athlete. Right. Uh, but those that are, there's a different kind of guidance to give to those who've focus their entire life up until this point at 21, 22 on playing a sport. How do you help them transition into realizing you're going to be like uh, Dan, Colin, and Ken? you got to live a real life. Well, Colin, one of the other ones I wanted to bring up is uh, making maximum use of summers for educational and pro professional development. Now, I mean, I think some would say, well, a lot of these student-athletes are probably working towards their craft anyway during the summer if they think they're going to be a professional athlete. But as Ken laid out, so many of them are not going to be, and it provides them a great opportunity in that two-month window to be able to either to take more classes or be able to go out and, and work an internship with, with some firm. Yeah, so I, I think what informed um, that, that, that number four is, is really sort of the response that I got from student athletes uh, in my dissertation. I spoke to 40 men across all five power conferences at 20 different institutions. And one thing that practically all of them mentioned was the lack of ability to have an internship, right? So when we think about the roles and the different identities that they have, there are immense amount of hours spent on developing the athletic craft. Um, to some extent, they have to spend some time within the classroom. But when we get back to this issue of time and they're just not being enough, some of those guys, they've, ne they've never been in a professional work environment, right? So not a job shadow, not an internship for a couple weeks. They've never, the only job they've ever really had was being a student athlete. So getting into now trying to transition for some that are able to, you know, use the connections that they have um, through the university to land an opportunity, they don't cut it in those spaces because this is all new. They, they haven't had to use these transferable skills. They've never been at a copy machine or, or, or done send an email with an attachment. Like there, there's some really essential skills that I think that not even at a super high level, 
but things that you, you've got to do to go in and be competitive. And for folks that are trained to think about competing, the way that they spoke about it was, I am not able to compete with my peers who've had two to three or four years of internships, and now I don't know what to do because I'm not used to not being able to compete. You also can talk about just really enforcing the hour restrictions that, that athletes are supposed to have as a key ingredient as well. Well, and, and of all the, the recommendations we make, I mean, this is probably the most difficult one of all, because in, in some senses, an NCAA official once said to me, well, the, well, the horses are already out the barn. The, and the idea, and I said this earlier, that hours that you're not spending preparing to be successful on the field of play, uh, you're preparing, you're giving the other, other side the advantage. You're, you're allowing them to get greater preparation. Yeah. So, so the idea of regulating precisely how much time the institution requires you to participate in practice 20 hours per week that that's not even done very well so if we could at least handle that the idea that that these individual athletes are going to work like crazy and be in the gym and train on their own that's going to be difficult to reel back but that goes back to the whole counseling phase that goes back to well you can do all that but if, if you use the 24th hour of the day at least to think about your future, to think about your career beyond sport. Well, and, and Colin, I'll finish up with uh, the issues about the the actual classes and the, and the coursework and, and making sure that the athletes themselves are doing it. That's been a problem for, for quite some time, and it still continues to this day. I mean, all we have to do is look at what uh, has been uh, brought forth at the University of North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that, that one's pretty self-explanatory, right? There's, there's no value to being in a class where you're not learning anything, where you're, you're not gaining any critical thinking skills, um, where you're not being thought to, taught to look at different situations and decipher how to go one way or another. Um, we, we, we've, we've got to be genuine um, about prioritizing education. We've got to say that um, these women and men are folks that we're going to teach and we're not just going to keep eligible because if we don't, they just get moved along this trajectory, right? And that starts even before college. We see that at AAU levels and junior and high schools um, where we're sort of just passing folks along, hoping that, you know, by the time they get where we're hoping they get to, the issue is no longer there. Um, the reality is it's just not feasible. We've, we've, we've got to focus our energies on making sure that the courses are, are, gen, are genuinely courses. Great having you both with us. Ken, as always, great to talk to you. Colin, appreciate your time today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. All the best. The book, by the way, is The Miseducation of the Student-Athlete, How to Fix College Sports. Wharton Digital Press has put that book out. Uh, It's available for purchase uh, uh, online uh, through Wharton Digital Press to pick that up today. It is a phenomenal look uh, by both Ken and Colin at at some of the things that maybe the NCAA and all these institutions really need to address to to make the experience for college athletes uh, much better and prepare them for life uh, in a much higher form. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.